And if you think that it's difficult for public intellectuals to speak truth to power, it is that much more difficult to speak truth to money. That's Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at Tufts University, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and contributor to the Washington Post. Today we hear from Daniel about his book, The Ideas Industry, how pessimists, partisans, and plutocrats are transforming the marketplace of ideas. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Every once in a while, when you're scanning the op-ed pages or flipping through a magazine of cultural criticism like The Atlantic or The New Republic, you come across a piece on what's called the public intellectual. Often, the writer asks what the duties of the public intellectual are, or she'll ask whether there are any real public intellectuals left. The considerations are always interesting, but often it feels like we're covering some of the same ground. But if you take a look at Daniel Dresner's recent book, The Ideas Industry, I think you might find something new and pretty useful to think about. In his book and in a recent article published in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Dresner identifies some key differences between the kind of thinker we might consider a public intellectual and the one now commonly referred to as a thought leader. The latter kind of thinker is arguably a new one, the TED Talker, say, or the promoter of a certain idea or set of ideas. In our conversation, Daniel explores these and other differences between the public intellectual and the thought leader as he's defined them. Dan also discusses the relationship between thought leadership and plutocracy, and explains why he thinks the marketplace of ideas has become what he calls the ideas industry. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Daniel Dresner, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Happy to be with you. Uh, I, I know that I've got to do podcasts now, so uh, perfectly. <laughs> good, good. Well, hopefully it's a good time. So uh, my first question, you recently published an article, which is an excerpt from your book, the ideas industry called the triumph of the thought leader and the eclipse of the public intellectual to dig into this article. I'm wondering if first we could define terms. So yeah. what, what, what in your view is a thought leader and what's a public intellectual? And I'll just, I'll just throw out my sense initially. And I think this might be the sense of some listeners is that thought leader sounds, sounds kind of new and public intellectual sounds perhaps old kind of fifties, kind of tweety kind of Lionel Trilling esque. And I'm wondering if that was your intention in using that particular term as opposed to thought leader. To some extent. And, and to be fair, the terms I'm using, I think, are, are well known and probably despised by a wide number of people. So the problem was is it was hard to come up with, with any new kind of term. And I thought it, it, rather than trying to come up with some sort of neologism, like, God forbid, something like Thinkfluencer or something. <laughs> um, I thought it was just better to use these terms because I, I think it does accurately capture what uh, the sort of difference between the two of them. So uh, in essence, the distinction between the two of them goes back to Isaiah Berlin's essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, um, in which Berlin says that there are two kinds of thinkers in the world. There's the fox who knows a little bit about a lot, and then there's the hedgehog who knows one big thing. The way I transport that in terms of the sort of modern marketplace of ideas is that public intellectuals are like foxes. Public intellectuals are critics. They can tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. They bring expertise to the table, but very often they're willing to branch out beyond their expertise, and they are generally function as critics. 
thought leaders, on the other hand, are evangelists. They're the hedgehogs. They know one big thing. They have usually one big idea, and they think that that idea can explain everything. And so if you come at them with a problem, they will somehow find a way in which that problem can be explained by whatever their big idea is. I want to be clear when I talk about it, and in some ways the Chronicle essay uh, shaped this a little bit. It gives the impression that all academics are public intellectuals and are not thought leaders. That is not what I would say. In fact, there are a fair number of academics that actually do function as thought leaders. And as Berlin noted in the original essay, there are limits to the extent to which you can push this dichotomy. But I do think it actually works in terms of explaining the, the modern marketplace of ideas. And what I say in the book is that essentially to have a proper marketplace of ideas, you need both of these kinds of thinkers. You need public intellectuals and you need thought leaders. You need thought leaders to inject new ideas into the marketplace. And then you need public intellectuals to criticize them within an inch of their lives. And so if you have a market dominated by public intellectuals, that's a marketplace in which the barriers to entry are too high. And so as a result, things get very stagnant and ossified. It's the same bunch of people. And as you say, in some ways, that does reflect, I think, to, to a great deal, the sort of Cold War years mm. um, in which it was a, a more restricted, narrower uh, sort of Eastern establishment kind of, of conversation in which the Lionel Trillings of the world certainly thrived, but it was tougher for other intellectuals to potentially uh, surmount those barriers. The world we're in now is one in which, uh, for a variety of reasons, the marketplace is dominated by thought leaders. And that is certainly a more interesting and vibrant marketplace. But the problem there is that while the barriers to entry might be too low or might be low, the barriers to exit are too high. In other words, you have a lot of ideas floating around, but they're really, really stupid ideas very often. <laughs> and so as a result, you don't have sufficiently powerful public intellectuals being able to kill bad ideas uh, with intellectual fire, as it were. And so in a world in which public intellectuals are weakened, you know, you have these ideas that can actually achieve public prominence or, God forbid, actually influence the way policymakers act um, without them being properly vetted. Could you give some examples of each category? So uh, we, you've been talking about Cold War intellectuals for public intellectuals, but I'm just wondering, um, maybe some people either working today or working in, in recent history, uh, who, who who would be a good example of a thought leader and who would be a good example of a public intellectual? Right. So in, in the book, which is primarily, and I should add, the book is primarily about the sort of foreign policy community, mostly because that's my own area of expertise and that's an area that I've encountered a fair amount. The two examples I give, of uh, one of, of a public intellectual would be someone like Fareed Zakaria, who is you know extremely well-credentialed. He's got a PhD from Harvard. He was the managing editor of Foreign Affairs. And he comments on a wide variety of, of things. In fact, at one point, I believe he had a wine column at Slate magazine. And the interesting thing about uh, Zakaria is that no one is entirely sure what Zakaria's own beliefs are. In researching the book, it was fascinating to read profiles of him in which he was labeled at various times a liberal, a centrist, a conservative, and a neoconservative. And you can't be all of those things at the same time, which suggests that he's actually holding his hard uh, cards very close to the vest. And certainly willing to comment on other ideas. And, he, and to be clear, I'm not trying to say that Zakaria doesn't have any opinions. He actually has some rather clear opinions on some of his books. But his sort of overall worldview, I would argue, is more one of a critic rather than one putting forward a positive vision. On the other hand, in terms of the world of thought leaders, someone like Neil Ferguson, I think, would be a, a classic example of a thought leader. Neil Ferguson is as credentialed, if not more so, than, than Zakaria. Certainly, you know, from the Academy, he's written more books, I'm sure, than I will ever read. But, you know, he comes at things 
in terms of his public commentary from a decidedly conservative worldview and sort of plays the role of the happy warrior in terms of, of engaging his critics on this. And he has many, many critics, but, you know, really believes the, the, the sort of notion that that Western civilization, the sort of six killer apps he talks about in terms of Western civilization are worth preserving and, and can explain a great deal in terms of the sort of current state of the world, which is, you know, either the decline of the West or the rise of the West. So, so you begin your article uh, this way, uh, quote, it's the best of times for thought leaders. It's the worst of times for public intellectuals. It's the most confusing of times for those of us in the academy. You've sort of been, uh, I think, gesturing toward th- th- this sort of dynamic, this current state of affairs and, and what you've said so far. But I'm wondering if you could dig right into um, why you think it is that in the present moment, or uh, to, to use a phrase that's this is a sort of N plus one phrase, the present intellectual situation. What is it about this moment or situation that's more conducive to the success of of Neil Ferguson and the so-called thought leaders as opposed to uh, public intellectuals? Right. So I mean, the parallel, I, I, I don't say this explicitly in the book, but for your podcast listeners, who I'm sure we'll be able to make the connection. I kind of thought of this book in some ways like E.H. Carr's 20 Years Crisis, that book, which was written in 1939, set up a dichotomy between utopian thinkers and realist thinkers. And a lot of people who have read Carr came away from that book concluding, oh, Carr is a realist. He doesn't subscribe to these modes of utopian thinking. Where if you actually read the book carefully, it's very clear that Carr understands that the world needs both utopian and realist thinkers. But he was arguing in that present at that moment mm. in the late 30s that the utopians were too dominant and that was a problem. So in essence, what I'm arguing now is that thought leaders are too dominant now, and that's a problem. But the, the reason that I think there are three forces that I, I talk about in the book, the first is the erosion of trust in authority and expertise. And you can take a look at public opinion survey after public opinion survey, but basically trust in almost every major American institution outside of the U.S. military has declined significantly since the mid-60s. There's been some variation, obviously, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the decline has been pretty constant. And if you take a look at sort of knowledge-based institutions, the General Social Survey conducts this kind of, of surveying. And basically between 1974 and 2012, the average sort of confidence level in those institutions fell from 50% to 30%. And that's problematic uh, because in a world in which trust in institutions and authority and expertise is low, it means that public intellectuals who are very often the more heavily credentialed kind of thinker can't argue from authority. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that arguing from authority is always very good. Arguing from authority is an intellectual shortcut. If, you know, let's say Paul Krugman says, you know, this current foreign policy decision is a bad one. Very often people reading it will think, oh, my God, a Nobel Prize winning economist thinks this is a bad idea. It must be a bad idea. Um, in a world in which trust in authority and expertise is low, it means that that kind of technique doesn't work anymore. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're a tenured professor at Harvard or if you're a MacArthur Genius Grant winner or if you're a Pulitzer Prize winner or what have you. Those credentials don't necessarily matter to people. So as a result, this actually does lower the barrier to entry for thought leaders who might have some of these credentials but might come at things not from the academy but from other places like uh, the business world or public relations or what have you. Uh, so that's trend one. Trend two is the increasing rise of political polarization in America. Um, and again, the data on this is pretty incontrovertible in that, uh, you know, basically Republican elites are shifting ever more in a conservative direction. 
democratic elites are shifting in an ever more liberal direction. There's a variety of explanations for this, which I don't want to get into. But the important thing is that essentially neither set of elites trust the other anymore. Indeed, down to the point where when they are surveyed, you have you know, Republican elites that don't want their children to marry Democrats, because that would be worse than marrying someone of a different religion, you know, or something like that. And so, uh, and indeed, there's been survey evidence that shows that in terms of things like job discrimination, partisan elites are far more likely to discriminate based on someone's political persuasion than on things like race or gender or sexual orientation. This is problematic because in theory, a public intellectual is supposed to speak truth to power. A public intellectual is supposed to, you know, say what they think is, is true no matter what, which occasionally makes them intellectually heterodox. But that's not what partisan elites on either side want. They want their own house intellectuals. They want their own people who tell them you are absolutely right in terms of what you should believe. And so as a result, it leads to the, the generation of intellectuals that essentially make money by catering to one base or the other. So think about the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world. I think that's the, the example that I use in the book, and I think it's a, a pretty good one. Um, in which D'Souza has become rich basically by telling conservatives that what they believe is completely 100% all the time correct. Mm -hmm. The third trend, is, and the most serious one, is the rise of uh, economic inequality in the United States, um, particularly the rise of wealth inequality and the existence of a sort of you know new plutocratic class um, in which these people have more money than they know what to do with, and it turns out that what they want to do is go back to college. Uh, but they don't go back to college. What they actually do is create their own foundation or create their own intellectual salon um, or create their own book club or wind up attending Davos or Pop Tech or South by Southwest or what have you. Um, and the idea is that these people are genuinely interested in ideas, and that's not a bad thing, I would stress. However, as a class, plutocrats have particular viewpoints that make them somewhat distinct from the rest of the population. And unsurprisingly, they are going to want to talk to thinkers that essentially confirm their preconceived worldviews. So as a result, um, if they encounter a public intellectual who tells them, well, you got rich in part based on your own effort, but also in large part based on structural conditions beyond your control, plutocrats don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that there are things beyond their control. Indeed, if you're that rich, you often very often believe you can control everything. You're a master of the universe. Um, and if you think that it's difficult for public intellectuals to speak truth to power, it is that much more difficult to speak truth to money. Um, and so as a result, uh, what these kinds of uh, plutocrats will do is winding up funding thought leaders that essentially offer ways of thinking that uh, essentially reaffirm whatever their preconsisting worldview is. And their preconsisting worldview tends to be a kind of soft libertarianism. And this is true regardless of what their stated political persuasion is. I mean, so we're not just talking about the Koch brothers here, we're also talking about Silicon Valley, right. where those, those billionaires are decidedly on the left if you were to sort of do a simple left-right political spectrum. But they often view politics as a sort of piece of faulty coding that they can somehow hack. Um, and that's not how politics works. So I, I, have, I have a number of questions about what you just said. I, I, guess, I guess just to go back... Uh, to, to the to the set of three sort of um, uh, sort of issues you see currently with the marketplace of ideas. I mean, yeah. one thing one thing you write uh, and you sort of you sort of pointed toward this uh, just just now. Um, you write, "quote Thought leaders are often derided as glib TED talkers, lacking in substance." Um, I'm 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 interested 
in this in part because it does in a sense it does kind of ring true it, it rings true for a certain um i don't know perhaps a squeamishness i have about ted talks which is just that they're essentially elevator pitches for ideas they're, they're pretty short um uh and there's there's not there's not really any uh, uh room for an engagement and i think you have you have pointed this out elsewhere is that there's really no conversation actually between the audience and the ted talker so i'm wondering i mean uh is is that one reason that like that thought leadership is um prominent today in large part because it would be more appealing to perhaps the 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 plutocrats you reference I think that's undeniably true. I'll, I'll talk about TED Talks in a second because I, I have a mixed I genuinely have a, a conflicted opinion on them. But I would say that part of the reason the TED Talk format particularly appeals to thought leaders is in some ways it's twofold. The first is, is that plutocrats love TED Talks uh, because the great thing about TED Talks is they're short. And it, it, the most precious resource that that people at that level have is time. Uh, right. And so being able to get exposed to an idea in under 20 minutes is genuinely appealing if you literally are are pressed for time and can't necessarily read a book but can listen to you know a podcast or watch a TED talk, you know something might be worth ten, you know twenty minutes to listen to, even if they don't have a few hours to read whatever the book is. The second reason that I think thought leaders are better or more predisposed to TED talks, or at least the format, is that public intellectuals you know have a tendency to argue that things are complicated. You know, the world, it's a nuanced world out there for public intellectuals that it's very hard for us to, you know, to say X is true now and everlasting, you know, uh, and, and in some ways, this is why, as a general rule, academics are more likely to sort of identify, self-identify as public intellectuals when they engage the public rather than thought leaders. You know, we, as someone who writes occasionally for a public audience, I have occasionally felt the guilt where, you know, I write the original version of an, of an op-ed or something in which I have lots of hedging uh, sentences and I've got like a to be sure paragraph and, and, and I'm doing all of this because I know what I am saying is might be probabilistically true but might not always be true or conditions might change or so on and so forth. But, you know, editors and, and publishers of public uh, of, uh, of venues like that can't stand that kind of language and understandably so because that kind of language might be off-putting to a reader that wants a clear, simple message. And the nice thing about TED Talks is that they offer clear, simple messages. But as I say, I, and I, I do say this in the book, I don't think I said it in the Chronicle excerpt, I do have to admit that while there's a lot of people who don't like TED Talks, I do think it's somewhat churlish of us as intellectuals to be upset that there is a way in which people can potentially express ideas to a broad middle class of American society, and we're upset because they're listening. Mm. Um, that, that strikes me as a touch elitist. You know, you know I, I don't think it's a bad thing that, that things like TED Talks are thriving. What I do want to see, and I think I, I might have said this in the, the Chronicle pieces, it's not that I want to get rid of TED Talks. I just want to see TED Talks with discussants. I want to see TED Talks where someone gives a talk and then there's a five-minute rebuttal. Because the problem with the TED Talk format is, is that by the end of it, it's like listening to a sermon where by the end you are completely convinced, and there's some statistic that says like half of them you know, end with standing ovations, and I'm sure it's gone up since that statistic was measured. And it's not that I necessarily even think all of these are bad ideas. I would just like to see them poked and prodded a little bit, and the format doesn't make that possible. Um, and so that's what I would like to see to some extent. I don't want to get rid of TED Talks. I think that's, you know, that, that, that would be like getting rid of podcasts or getting rid of other sort of, uh, other sort of venues where people can, can hawk their intellectual wares. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. 
I have a problem with people who, or with formats that essentially eliminate criticism. So I, 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 I want to talk about another op, upshot, excuse me, of your article. Um, and I, I'm, I'm realizing now that I'm asking a lot of questions about, about the terms you use. And I think I'm asking yeah. them in part because I'm, yeah, I'm currently a graduate student. And so often we, we talk about terms and oh, you poor bastard. Yeah. I know. And <laughs> no, we, no, you're we, right. I mean, no, it's, it, the, look, this is what Hobbes said in his, in Leviathan. The first thing you got to do is define your terms. So it, go ahead. Well, uh, and I mean, I'm really interested in your critique of and and the the review in the nation. I think Eric Alterman wrote it of your book. Um, <laughs> sort of also brings this up. Your kind of implicit critique of of the influence of the plutocracy on the marketplace of ideas. So I mean, one shot, one upshot. Excuse me again of of your article seems to be that in an ideal world, as you say, there would be a kind of suitable ratio of thought leaders to public intellectuals mm -hmm. and that their respective work would inform and guide public policy or foreign and foreign policy and uh, what you do uh, so you use the phrase the marketplace of ideas which i think a lot of people certainly everyone who's listening has probably heard uh, but you also use the phrase uh the ideas industry um yes. so i'm 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 really interested in that latter phrase because it, it seems kind of inflected with a certain hesitant, perhaps um, suspicious gesture toward neoliberalism or toward um, uh, perhaps global capitalism. Could you talk about that? Sure, I'd be happy to, but I'm not sure you're going to like my answer. Okay. Um, with, with this being said, I have to comment on the, the Eric Alterman review. I was just, I was delighted by the review. I don't think it was uh, because he hates everything. Uh, and so that that review was I could not have asked for a better review from from Eric Alton. Well, yeah, it was pretty laudatory review on the on the whole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, but he doesn't really. He doesn't like that much. So I was I was very <laughs> flattered by that. But where we might disagree, you're right. I mean, I, and I think I say this in the introduction. You know, I, I'm the one who coined the term ideas industry, and in some ways, you know, marketplace of ideas connotes this notion of craftsmanship, right? You have this this image of artisanal workers, you know, you know, using uh, quill and ink to somehow like compose uh, deep thoughts, and that that gives a certain you know. Hmm. Uh, uh, th there's an undeniable positive inflection to that. Whereas if I, you know, the moment you bring up industry, uh, it brings up notions of mechanization right. or automation or you know lots of pollution or what have you, um, and that somehow seems less uh, less appealing to many people. And I certainly understand that, but it's also worth pointing, and I, I think I said this that you know, it, just as the industrial revolution itself certainly caused, you know, some had some negative effects. It was also an undeniable uh, dramatic increase in the wealth of, of average uh, people living in, in Northwest Europe. So therefore, on the whole, I think it's actually a, a good thing. The reason I call it the ideas industry is basically that the demand for ideas now has been, is never been better, has never been greater. And so as a result, and this is where it's a little more problematic, the rewards for being an intellectual, the material awards for being an intellectual now are greater than they ever have been before. So, you know, you have the Fareed Zakaria's or Neil Ferguson's of the world basically being able to go on a lecture circuit where they can earn, you know, potentially up to six figures for a speech. And very often that means they can give the same speech, you know, five, six, seven times a year or, you know, potentially more than that. You're talking about an income of more than half a million just from those kinds of speeches alone. Now, to plutocrats, half a million dollars probably doesn't sound that like that uh, all that much. To someone like you or me who is getting a PhD, 
you know, I, I don't know about you. I never thought when I got my PhD, oh, yes, and then I will make a half a million dollars. <laughs> um, that's not how it works. I, and God, let me be clear, I don't, wear, I don't make anywhere close to that amount. But the idea that you can live, you know, a upper class life by being a successful intellectual, that's actually new, I would argue. And it's new in the sense of certainly people have always been able to do this, but it's only been a very, very small select group of people. That, that circle is widened somewhat more um, now. But that said, it, as I said, it's a mixed uh, we're living in a mixed age. The, the thing I tried to, to fight very hard against in the book was this notion, and it, it it's what I call the nostalgia bias. It's this notion that, oh, things were better before in the, the, in the days of yore with respect to intellectual affairs. And I'm trying to say, no, that's not true. It, right now, things are bad, but they're bad in a different way than they were before. And they were bad back then, too. And they were probably always been bad. So, you know, in that sense, I'm a true public intellectual. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I think that what especially what you just said about um, it not necessarily being or almost certainly not being better uh, even 50 years ago must be true, especially because you, in order even to, to have a, um, any kind of serious career in the, in the academy, you had to be a certain kind of person with a certain kind of education. Right, um, exactly. And and. Uh, uh, there, I'm... And this is true, by the way, in foreign policy as well. I right. mean, you know, right. this is my knowledge. You know, a lot of people, a lot of foreign policy uh, thinkers now extol, let's say, George Kennan, you know, is the architect mm -hmm. of, of containment and, and is generally lauded as sort of one of the great foreign policy intellectuals of the 20th century. And Kennan is someone who actually made a real difference in the world and then moved on to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Um, but it's worth pointing out that, A, Kennan got a fair number of things wrong, including he thought NATO was a really bad idea during the Cold War, and he proved to be wrong on that. And second, Kennan was a world-class racist and snob. Right. Um, and, and that's worth, you know, I'm not saying that, that that impeaches his ideas, but the notion that, therefore, why can't we all be like Kennan, I get a little bit worried about that. Well, and that's actually, that's, that's my next question. I, I, you write in your article, uh, quote, the rise of the for-profit thought leader has come at the same time that those in the academy have retreated from the public sphere. Uh, so uh, I think we can go in a lot of directions with that line. I think it's, I think it's uh, really compelling. One question I have is whether it, it also might be fair to say that the rise of the for-profit thinker, the one who is, is can, can, can make a lot of money uh, in large part because he or she might advance ideas that um, are palatable to plutocrats or um or to people who believe i think you point this out in your article believe in the meritocracy that mm -hmm. th that the rise of that kind of thinker has come at a time when the when the state is becoming less and less interested in funding higher education so you nod to this problem i think where you use the phrase the war on college right could, could you talk about that because it does seem like okay a certain kind of intellectual can make a lot more money but this is happening at the same time as this you know the adjunctification of of yeah. faculty life too no that's true and I, I to be fair i don't really address the adjunctification issue um within the book there's only there was only so much i could write mm -hmm. uh on that and also in some ways i'm in a lousy position to do that because i'm someone who's managed to avoid the adjunctification part and and uh, that that creates complications. Right. Um, that said, when I talk about the war on college, what I'm referring to is this sort of tw twin pronged assault on the notion of higher education, which is a little bit unusual. So in, on the one hand, conservatives have always been critics, or at least since the beginning, the heyday of the Cold War, since William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale, you know, critiquing the college campus as this bastion of liberalism. 
that somehow brainwashes and indoctrinates uh, college students, which I have to say, which I have to say, I find very amusing, because it is remarkable how, if you take a look at polling, uh, it turns out that college-educated individuals are, are tend to, you know, vote a little more with their uh, their income preferences, which means they tend to vote a little more Republican mm. up until recently. Um, but what is added to that? And, and the sort of modern manifestation of that, the 21st century version of that, is the the critique against uh, political correctness um, on campuses, the notion that there are certain modes of thought that are somehow deemed, you know, too offensive or too problematic. And to be clear, I actually have some sympathy to this critique. Um, I just think that it can in, go too far and is a dangerous tendency to sort of draw upon one or two anecdotes and argue that it's an ongoing trend. The bigger problem is that that conservative critique is coming at the exact same time that there is now a critique coming from the left that universities are bastions of neoliberalism or neoliberal corporatism. So think about, and I'm going to mangle his name, uh, the William uh, Gerisowitz's book, oh, uh, sure, Excellent Sheep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's hardly the only one to, to make this criticism, you know, claiming that the real problem with uh, higher education today is that it, it, you know, turns college students into corporate drones. And then, uh, you know, attached to that are other criticisms of campus life, you know, the notion that colleges are bastions essentially of a rape culture or, um, you know, the whole debate over privilege and what privilege means when people are having intellectual debates. And that's actually less my topic. And, and you should actually talk to Phoebe Maltbovi, who has just come out with an interesting book about the privilege debate, uh, which I wish I had been able to cite in my book. But the point is, is that because college is getting it from both ideological uh, sides, it winds up finding this, you know, sort of it, it's tough to counter that assault. It's not that colleges are, are in serious trouble. Um, indeed, I would argue think tanks are in, in far worse shape than colleges, relatively speaking. But it does mean that, you know, it's tough for college professors and college presidents uh, to maintain their voice in the public sphere. College presidents because let's face it, at this point, the primary duty, if you're a dean or a college president, is to be a fundraiser. Um, and you don't necessarily, again, want to speak truth to money. And for professors, it becomes harder, because if you do speak out publicly, there's a few risks you run. The first is, is that um, you get risk being stereotyped by, you know, someone as being, you know, let's say if you make a criticism of, let's say, a conservative argument, it is very easy for conservatives to criticize you as saying, oh, you're some out-of-touch leftist academic, and that's a great stereotype that applies, you know, that, that has a ring of truth to it. Um, and that's a problem, actually, uh, because, to be fair, the universities are way to the left of uh, the rest of American society, and I would argue that is something of a genuine problem. So that, that's obviously uh, an issue. The second problem, of course, is that, God forbid, you make an argument and the argument goes viral. Because then you are dealing with the fetid world of social media. You know, that's where you can potentially run into uh, people that will just, you know, overwhelm your inbox and send you letters and, you know, try to get at you on social media for being evil for some reason or another when, in fact, that's not what you did. Indeed, there, I believe there's an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education on this very issue involving... Arij Zafari, uh, who is a Muslim professor who taught a uh, course on Middle Eastern humanities uh, at Rollins and gave a student who was a Christian a failing grade. Who, that student then responded by threatening to go public and contact, you know, national media personalities, which actually succeeded in terms of creating uh, a whole making that professor a target of calumny. 
and to be fair, it works on the other ideological side as well. So it's, it, that, that is a real problem. So one thing, one thing that you said just kind of in passing that was interesting um, and, and seemed to be seemed to sort of cut to the heart of the current state of the marketplace of ideas is that you think it might actually be worse in think tanks than it is um, yeah. in universities. And I'm just struck by that because you then just described, I think, kind of vividly some of the issues going on right now in universities, especially with um, mm -hmm. um, the rise of, of, of the use of social media and the, and the fact that, I mean, professors, um, professors like the one you, you cited can run into serious serious oh, yeah. problems. I mean, so why do you think that, that uh, think tanks are, are worse off? Oh, because as much as, I, I don't mean to say that universities don't face challenges, they clearly do. But one of the advantages that universities have is that they do confer things like tenure on, few, on some mm -hmm. people. Um, people do need to get college degrees in order to be able to go into the workplace. So to make an economic metaphor that I'm sure will despise, uh, many people will despise, think of universities as the, as the commercial banks of the, uh, the intellectual world in the sense of they, they take in a lot of deposits. There's a lot of revenue sources beyond philanthropic giving that power what universities do. And, and you know, even if government grants are drying up and even if you see the rise of sort of philanthropic capitalists that are targeting their, their dollars towards some places rather than others, at least sort of the elite universities still have, you know, significantly, you know, can draw in revenue from tuition. They can draw in revenue uh, from their endowments as well. So I don't mean to say that things are hunky-dory within universities, but there are alternative sources of funding for them. Think tanks are the investment banks of the marketplace of ideas because think tanks don't have usually that large of an endowment. They don't have students going to them for educational degrees. Their entire operating budget is based on getting research grants uh, and based on getting funding from other sources. And so, you know, for think tanks, even more so, you know, universities usually tend to give, you know, try to maintain sort of a, a nonpartisanship. And as much as that might be mocked by conservatives, that the effort still matters, I think. Whereas if think tanks try to do this, they get accused of conflicts of interest repeatedly based on the sources of income that they are getting going in. So, you know, you've, you've seen a raft of stories over the last two years about think tanks getting funding from foreign governments. Um, or funding from corporate sponsors. And the question is, to what degree does that sponsorship wind up affecting the think tank's area of research? Now, to be clear, I actually don't think in most cases it does affect the area of research. But the problem is the appearance of a conflict of interest for think tanks, and the, which makes them vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy, I think is actually causing a damage to the entire brand. And what's fascinating about this is that at the same time you see those think tanks in trouble, you do see the rise of for-profit think tanks. Um, you know, institutions like the, the McKinsey uh, Global Institute, for example, that are explicitly for profit, um, that very often don't have that much in the way of data transparency. But weirdly enough, because they're upfront about being for profit, they don't get the same charge of hypocrisy. Hmm. That's well, I mean, that's really interesting because in both cases, the charge would seem to be that any thinker who works in a in a think tank would have to be ideologically pure or would feel the need to uh, to assent to some kind of um, ideological well, litmus test. Certainly that would be the case in the latter. Well, it depends on the think tank. I mean, there are some think tanks that are genuinely, you know, non that are expressly nonpartisan. So mm -hmm. I think the, the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, um, has people on that. You know, there are people who work for that think tank that are clearly on the right. And then there are people that are clearly on the left. 
Um, but there are other kinds of think tanks. Think the Heritage Foundation um, on the right or the Center for American Progress on the left, where it, yeah, there is an ideological litmus test uh, to some extent. Um, and it should be pointed out here, I, and again, I don't want to mean, I don't want to just bash thought leaders mercilessly, and I, I say this in the book. Part of the reason that, that some of these thought leaders succeed with philanthropists is not that they're necessarily altering their ideas to please the philanthropists, is that they genuinely believe these ideas and the philanthropists have found them. Right. So in some ways, it, it's, it's also just a selection effect. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know I got to let you go soon, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I do have some questions about you, uh, Professor yeah, Dessner. Sure. Uh, first, uh, where did ah, you... Ah, good. Now the autobiographical portion. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I do kind of want to link it uh, to what we've been talking about. I mean, my, I, my first question is, is where did you grow up and, and where did you go to college? We moved around a lot when I was a kid. I was born in Syracuse, New York, but by the time I was 10 years old, we had lived in seven or eight different places. My parents were pretty young, and my father was uh, studying to be a doctor, so we we moved around for his internship, his residency. The Air Force intervened for a few years. There was a fellowship. And then after the age of 10, I grew up in suburban Connecticut, uh, and I attended Williams College. So when you started your undergraduate work, uh, did you think at that point, that you wanted to say be either a public intellectual or a thought leader? Did you have certain oh, things? Did you Christ, have George Kenner, Kennan in mind when you <laughs> when you started studying? You, this is the guy I want to be. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I feel I really do feel sorry for anyone at the age of 18 thinking, yeah, I want to be George Kennan when I grow then, up. Then you, um, to a degree, you feel sorry for me. But <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not George Kennan, but I no, apologize. there are plenty of starry-eyed 18-year-olds who want to be, you know, Lionel Trilling or like Susan Sontag or something like that. I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't. I, I can honestly say I don't know. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at the age of 18. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be a doctor because that was what my father did. And I didn't want to be a lawyer because that's what my father wanted me to be. Mm. Um, not that I have any father issues whatsoever. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I majored in political economy at Williams, and I, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I enjoyed both the politics and the economics. And I think the, the, the sort of intellectual moment where I realized I wanted to continue to do this was when I was writing my senior thesis, which was on Japanese industrial policy, um, which at the time was a big deal. And so, you know, I was spending night after night in the library. This is back in the day when you would actually do that um, because you couldn't, you know, read on your Kindle or what have you. Um, And so I'm reading books and taking notes, you know, and and so on and so forth. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, if I get a Ph.D., I could do this, you know, for a lot longer. And and it occurred to me that I, you know, throughout my college career, I had um, proposed various paper topics at which my my professors would say, well, that would be fine if you were writing a doctoral thesis, but maybe you should narrow the topic down. And I remember thinking, if I go get a PhD, I'll come up with a topic and and they can't say I have to narrow it down because it will be a doctoral thesis. <laughs> and so that was when I decided I, I wanted to to pursue a PhD. And then, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, the socializing effects of, of being in a PhD program. Um, are extremely powerful in the sense of, of trying to get you to become a professor. But I, I went into that decision, I think, with my eyes open, and uh, I certainly don't regret the life I'm leading now. So what did you do your uh, PhD on? My PhD was uh, entitled, uh, Are Carrots and Sticks Good for You? A Theory of Economic Statecraft. So it eventually became my first book um, about economic sanctions called The Sanctions Paradox. And uh, when, once you wrote that and you sort of entered the academy in earnest, um, I mean, what was your experience like sort of uh, sort of first starting out as a professor? Um, and I guess, I, guess, I guess my question, what I'm trying to drive at actually is this. I, I think that um, 
especially now, um, uh, a lot of a lot of academics, a lot of young academics, are feeling a kind of urge to um, um, not just produce monographs, but also to right. do something sort of in the public or for the right. public. I think, especially you know, with just in, in the digital age, with the with the rise of Twitter yeah. and social media, sure. that this this feels like more of a kind of responsibility. And I'm wondering if you felt that way when you entered. Well, I mean, you're talking to someone that, that was always on the fence in terms of getting a PhD in political science, whether that was, that meant that I wanted to become an academic or that I wanted to join the think tank world or try to you know, get a job in government to influence policy. So I always thought of writing op-eds. That always struck me as, as a salient part of my job, even though I knew that it was not something that would you know, uh, play that large of a part in terms of you know, decisions like tenure and so forth. And just as you talk about the rise of social media now, in my case, the thing that really altered my career trajectory was the rise of blogging software, because I would occasionally try to submit op-eds to, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Chicago Tribune um, and would get rejected. And then suddenly you saw this blogging software that made it much easier for people to, you know, essentially set up their own blog. Uh, and so I started doing that in 2002. And then one thing led to another. I caught the attention of uh, the New Republic Online. So they had me write for them, and then eventually Foreign Policy hired me uh, to blog for them, and now I'm at the Washington Post. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's the same thing in the sense of I I wouldn't say that I felt a pressure, an external pressure to do this. In fact, if anything, the external pressure within the academy was the exact opposite. Uh, there were many people that did not want me to blog, um, and I talk about this in the book somewhat. I do think the culture has changed now, however. In that I do think, you know, there's enough surveys out there that suggest that public engagement, I think, is thought of as, as potentially a positive rather than a negative. And the way I would put it to junior scholars and to, to graduate students is that so long as you can demonstrate a solid scholarly CV, that you're, you're generating peer-reviewed research either in articles or books or dissertations, and you are also doing this kind of public engagement on the side, that public engagement will be seen as an, uh, a good um, if, on the other hand, your scholarly CV is thin and you're still doing this public, you know, the public engagement stuff, that's when it will hurt you. So do you this change in attitude that you referenced, do you think in, in addition to just being perhaps a good, uh, you know, to to, to blog um, might, might now be considered a kind of good thing to put on a CV for an academic? I mean, in addition to that, do you think that it's in a sense, ethically good. That's to say, do you think that more scholars should think it's their responsibility to do some kind of public intellectual work? Oh, that's a tricky question. My ideal, and I don't think we can do this, but my ideal is that you want people who are good at it to be able to do it and people who are not good at it to not be forced to do it. The problem is, is that in the world of intellectual affairs, it is a faddish, faddish world. Um, and so my fear, I, I think it used to be the case that this sort of thing was frowned upon. So anyone that did it had to sort of combat these norms of, well, we just don't talk to the public. That should that should be frowned upon. And I, I think another issue is that that academics who only write for for fellow academics tend to make the mistake cognitively of, of assuming all words take equal effort. And in my experience, that's not true. If I'm writing for international organization or international security, the effort that I have to put into, you know, to write that is a lot more than if I have to write for foreign affairs or foreign policy. And that is even more than the effort that I have to apply to write, you know, a column for The Washington Post or what have you. Um, and I don't even think about it when I tweet. So that, you know, um, but, but uh, so that that's one of the 
that's one of the issues. But I, I genuinely, and I mean this sincerely, I do not want, the last thing I want is to force academics who excel at doing nothing but scholarship to drag them to Twitter to say, you must tweet now um, because everyone else is doing it. And maybe, you know, maybe this is a, a fear that is uh, exaggerated because we're, we're not yet. there yet. But I worry that we will get there because in some ways, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't have to, you know, it was the moment when everyone who was an academic suddenly had, had to have an email account. Um, so my concern is, is that these kinds of things will become de rigueur, and I really don't think they should be. Come up to our time, uh, Professor Dresner. Uh, so I, I thank you for coming on to the podcast and talking with me, and I hope it was a, I hope it was a good time. It was good. Thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I hope I didn't discourage you too much. Oh, not at all. Thanks. I can't be discouraged okay. at this point. <laughs> ah, you are. Oh, you are a grad student. Then. That's good. That's the, <laughs> exactly. exact, that's the exact approach you need to have. Excellent. I wish you luck. Thanks very much. That was Daniel Dresner talking about his recent book, The Ideas Industry. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.